lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be back. Um, we had a little problem last week, but uh, we here, I'm here, and I missed you, and I hope you missed me. I have a guest this evening, as those of you who uh, read the PR know. Her name is Nora Wong. Uh, good evening, Nora. Good evening, Rabbi Mel. It's evening for us, you see. I don't know where you guys are in Alaska, and I don't know what it is. So Nora is here to talk to us and teach us, and uh, one of the things that you have heard me say many times is that there are those, <coughs> excuse me, who say that every death is difficult, the death of a child is more difficult. Uh, I'm not sure I, I believe that because I, I really do believe that every life is sacred, but it doesn't matter. Um, Nora is here to talk to us about the death of her son, Daniel. Let me read a little bit of her bio. Her bio is so long I couldn't get it all on, but it doesn't matter. Before her son, Daniel, died, Nora considered herself a stay-at-home mother. Prior to having children, she earned her Ph.D. in psychology at the University of Michigan and worked in corporate survey research. Daniel died on December 3, 2013, at the age of 22, just months after graduating from Stanford University. The doctors think he had a rare seizure disorder called new onset refractory status epilepticus, or NORSE, N-O-R-S-E. With NORSE, healthy people are suddenly struck by out-of-the-blue out prolonged seizures for which there is no remedy. It is a new and evolving medical term for a disorder long observed. There is no known cause or established treatment for NORSE. The outcomes of Norse are grim. Roughly a third of the parent patients die. About a third survive with significant brain defects, and the rest can recover to baseline. But almost all survivors then have epilepsy for the rest of their life. And many of them, like Daniel Wong, die from this. So I found out about Nora on Sunday, December 2nd, this past December, when I'm reading through my New York Times, actually, it was probably Wednesday by then, I never get to it on Sunday, and I see that there's a column um, in the well section, which was called Loving My Son After His Death. And it was written by 
my guest, our guest, Nora Wong. And I read it, and I was moved by it, and I immediately called her. She wasn't ready to talk about it then. Still hurt too much. But after a while, uh, she was ready, and here she is. And Nora, I'm delighted that you're here. I know it's each time you, you give a talk anywhere, it's not easy for you, and I, I'm sorry for that. I want you to know that your pain is, is, in a way, shared by all of us who are listening to you on, the, on this broadcast, and our blessings and love for Daniel and his memory go with you. So I'm delighted that you're here. Um, tell us a little bit, why don't we start at the beginning and give us the bad news first. Tell us, I mean, I read the article, but most of my listeners did not. So if you would, um, tell us what happened to Daniel and what you did about it at that time. Okay. Well, as you said, it was, it, um, my son had just graduated from Stanford. He was living independently in Boston. He had just started his, his job at uh, TIFF. It's a, the investment fund for foundations because he wanted, he was a financial analyst, but he wanted to work uh, for a nonprofit. He wanted. He believed in education and healthcare, and so he he decided to make money for nonprofits. And he had, and uh, he was just at his work there, and uh, he thought he had the flu. And we were speaking with him during the week, and um, he was getting better. And then uh, one morning, the day after we had spoken with him, when he said he was feeling better. I received a call from his roommate who told me that he had found Daniel standing in the apartment, half-dressed and unresponsive. Uh, couldn't speak, just couldn't move, just standing there. So he rushed him to Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, which is one of the finest hospitals in the country. And um, they he started to have a fever and seizures, and they had no idea why. And um, after many tests and after several anti-seizure drugs, um, they decided that um, because they could find no cause, they had to put him in an induced coma. And he remained in an induced coma for 78 more days. So he is hospitalized for 79 days. Wow. And uh, we dropped everything. We we live in New Jersey, and um, my husband and I flew out to be with him and basically stayed with him um, in Boston. And uh, it, it's hard to conceive of that seizures can kill you, but they can. Um, prolonged seizures can hurt the brain. They can also um, cause all... Uh, damage to other major organs and the drugs to u- to reduce the seizures also can hurt the rest of the body. So after Sarah, so you probably days, know more about the human body than you wish you did. 
Well, that's true. Um, but the difficult thing also is that he was dying, but we also had to make the decision whether or not to start palliative care. And um, that decision was hard to make because that there was never really a dis, dis, diagnosis, and the degree to which he was failing was not really known to us. I think that there, um, I think the doctors were very devoted, but there was um, incomplete communication, and so it was. Um, we were startled. We were taken aback when we were, we were, it was suggested to us that palliative care start. Um, but after we had um, a conversation then we, and, and some follow-up tests in which um, his brain MRI showed significant global damage, we decided to start palliative care the next morning. And he died within an hour. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What an ordeal that must have been. Yes. Because, well, it's when you talk about, you know, a child's death, I think that every death can be so painful. But I think on top of losing someone you love, it's, it's out of the natural order. I mean, my... I lost, my father died, actually, within a year that after Daniel died, but it was different. And although it was sad when he died, he, he was 88, so um, he had many strokes, he had cancer, he, he had dementia, and... So it was so expected. Was, you knew it was yes. going to happen sooner yes. than later. Yes, and I was able to say goodbye to him. I was not right. able to say goodbye to Daniel. He never regained consciousness. And no one expected a healthy 22-year-old to suddenly start seizing. And if not for all the drugs and the 24-hour EEG monitoring and three teams of doctors working on him constantly in the ICU he probably would have died immediately. Which, what you know now, I don't want to say would have been a better outcome, but it would have been perhaps because it would have been quicker, maybe easier for you to take. Uh, You would have begun to mourn sooner and... Uh, I I don't know. I just raise these issues because they they come to my to my mind. You know, no, so I, I think it's important that you raise the issue because I think that's uh, people think about these things, but they're afraid to say them, and so, that's why I think um, you you bring up things that people are hesitant to say. Um, I don't know whether it would have been better. I, I think that's the problem with the disorder of Norse. There's so much that's unknown. They don't know the cause of Norse. Um, 
they're not quite sure um, what, well, there's no established treatment plan, and they don't know what the outcome will be for a particular person. They know in general that mortality rate is very high. Morbidity, or the, the, the deficit afterwards, is quite devastating, but every once in a while, someone will recover, and they don't know which person it will be. So no one wants to give up. Right. When somebody recovers, quote-unquote, from Norris, are they always epileptic after that? Well, the unfortunate thing is that there isn't, because not even the term Norse is um, established. They're, they're, do, they're going, we can talk about that later, but they're going to, um, develop, they are in the process of developing what they call consensus definitions of the term. Right now, they will announce them next month. But, so as a result, without um, established definitions, they really don't know the trajectory of the disorder. They, don't, they haven't been able to track all the patients to see what will happen, um, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line when they do survive. So there's no place to go to find statistics on how many people have died from Norse because they didn't know it was Norse. Yes, that's that's correct. No, no firm statistics. There have been some. Um, I think one of the best um, research pieces is actually on our website on the Norse Institute website. There was a review of all the available information on Norse from um, 2008 until 2013. This paper was published the end of 2015, and it's in Neurology, the, the, the medical journal, Neurology, by Nicholas Gaspard, and it's available. Um, the, the site, you could download it from the Norse Institute website if you look on the professional side. Okay. So you were up against a brick wall. You didn't know where to go. You didn't know what to do. You didn't know what Daniel, what was wrong with Daniel. You just knew that Daniel wasn't Daniel anymore. Yeah, yeah. Now, he was in an induced coma, you said. Do you think he, did did you ever, like, hold his hand and ask him to squeeze your hand? And Oh, well, the doctors did that every single day. But um, as a test, and but of course I was with him every day, and I would hold him and touch him and wash his face, and um, I was very intent on giving him um, physical therapy because I didn't want him to um, become all contracted. Right. Um, if you if, if a person is immobilized in the ICU for a long time, the body just starts to contract and curl up on itself. And and so I worked with him every day. I massaged his hands and his feet and, and um, you know, flexed and, and opened his arms and his legs. So, yeah, I was, I touched him every day and I talked to him every day, but he never, 
He never answered. Wow. So you had no idea. Would you well, like to believe that he heard I, you? I'm sorry? Would you like to believe that he, in a way that I don't understand, and nobody does, that he heard you when you were talking to him? Well, I would like to believe because it's more, it's comforting to me. At the same time, he was hooked up to an EEG monitoring with all the electrodes on his head. And they kept him in an induced coma at a level they they tried to control the the seizures, obviously, to a certain point, and they call it burst suppression, meaning they don't want his, his brain cells to fire beyond a certain point. So I would be there and speak to him and move him and also see the monitor and see that there was no change. Yeah. And, but then what was very strange and unexplainable is that every once in a while he would have some activity, but not necessarily re- that was related to me. And every once in a while, despite his being in an induced coma, he would react to being touched. Meaning mm. uh, someone once wanted needed to do a... Um, uh, do some special kind of IV... And um, it was more intense. And Daniel jumped and so did the technician because he was just so startled. He just said to me, well, actually to no one in the room, he said, "If if that didn't happen to me, I wouldn't have believed it. Right. Because it, Daniel should not have felt anything. Right. And I, I was, uh, I guess my main worry is that that he felt something, that he was in pain, despite his right. being anesthetized. Right. We, we need to take a break. Okay. And uh, listeners, we will be right back, so don't go away. We'll be right back. what makes the most successful people tick keep listening to the voice america empowerment channel voiceamericaempowerment.com believe it or not the bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the promised land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, and God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. 
when you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hello, everybody. Rabbi Mel back. My guest is Nora Wong. Uh, she is the mother of Daniel, who died at the age of 22, suddenly, of something that we, she and we now uh, is called Norse. Uh, it's, uh, it's a messy definition. It's a messy kind of thing. And he was in an induced coma for... Um, you know, almost uh, two and a half months, and uh, then he died. Never came out of it, never woke up, never nothing. And so Nora was telling us the story based on an article that she wrote for the New York Times last December, which is where I found her, and I'm glad I did. Nora, if if we could move ahead a little bit. So, uh, so how did you discover even the term Norse? I mean, how did you, there wasn't anything then yet, was there? Well, actually, there was very little, and one doctor did mention it to me, She and this is just the complexity of life. In the very beginning, there was an ICU doctor who came up to me and said, I think it's this. She had a piece of paper in her hand. It's a medical report. She said, do you want to know? And I said, yes, and I read the article, and it was said Norse, and it said that almost everyone died. And I remember thinking to myself, she's wrong. There's no way she has this. Right. And um, it's very sad to say that she herself became very ill. She left the team, the medical team. Mm-hmm. before she had a chance to talk with the other doctors. And yes. so I just had the information. And I, after a while, when all the other tests came back negative, I did speak with one of the epilepsy specialists, and I said, Dr. So-and-so had said that he had North, does he? And he was not ready to say that that's what it was. Yeah. Because Norse is a diagnosis of exclusion in that you have to complete all of these tests. You know, it's not West Nile disease. It's not herpes simplex. It's not um, Eastern equine. And, you, know, you have to go through all these panels of tests, and they all have to come back negative. And so they weren't ready to say it was Norse. 
And then after a while, I think either they didn't realize that they never told us or some doctors assumed that someone else told us, but it was dropped. And I did ask maybe once again and there was no answer. So as in, no, we don't know whether it is or not. So basically, we never really had a diagnosis. And it wasn't until after he died when I kept on saying to the doctors, well, what was this? What is this? And they kept on saying, well, you know, the only way you could find out is to do a registry. And I said, well, please do a registry. And they were not ready to do one. And I... I bugged a doctor again, and she finally responded, Nicholas Gaspard and Larry Hirsch at Yale have a proposal to do a registry of Norse patients. Go see them. And that's when I realized Daniel must have had Norse. And from there, it branched out to more and more people having been diagnosed with Norse, and you started the foundation? Tell me the story of that. Well, uh, we we met with um, Larry Hirsch and Nicholas Gaspard, who are at Yale, and, um, and uh, we found out about the proposal, and we also found out that they had no money to, um, they, they had a proposal, to start a registry, but um, no funding. And we thought, well, how are you going to do this then? And they were so dedicated. Nicholas Gaspard said, well, we will do this in our spare time. And I thought, there's no way that you can yeah. do this in your spare time. Well, who has spare time on the, in the ICU? Right. And so we said, well, we, we set up a fund in Daniel's name at Yale. So it's a... Daniel Raymond Wong uh, Neurology Fund at Yale, and we we directed that money to uh, fund the registry, which is going to be done through a consortium of 41 academic medical centers um, in the U.S., Canada, and Belgium. And um, it is just starting and it'll include patients um, ages five and over who are who have who are patients of doctors affiliated with those medical centers and those um, the centers. I guess that you could find that out um, through our website. Also, it's part of the Critical Care EEG Monitoring Research Consortium. It's a terrible name; it's too long, but it includes. You know, Stanford and um, Harvard and Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and uh, Western University Hospital in um, Ontario, Canada, Belgium. So um, it's getting off. It's just starting. And so they need to wait for a patient who has North. And um, then they'll collect data on these patients while they're in the hospital. They'll look at um, clinical data as well as collect 
um, DNA, cerebral spinal fluid, and if they die, they'll have um, brain tissue. Our Jewish tradition says that if you save one life, you have saved a world. I don't want to say that, you know, if Daniel had not died, this never would have happened. But it's eminently possible. Well, I would have preferred someone else to do it. Because Daniel was on the path to do many things on his own. I understand that. But you don't have the power. That's not power that you got. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why Daniel had to be, you know, like a test case for this thing. Who knows? Nobody knows. All I know is that because of Daniel's death and your and your husband's persistence, the world is changing and people may be saved, lives may be saved, who otherwise would not, doctors would have not known about it. I'm not saying this right, but you understand what I'm saying. Yes. Well, In we, other we words, did, this is part of Daniel's legacy. Yes. We did so, think, like, what would he do? What would Daniel right. do? Right. And Daniel was all for social change and social justice. So we figured this, we had to do something on an organizational level. Okay. So Daniel would probably be happy that this organization has, is forming. Yes. Um, I don't know how he's going to tell you that, but he'll find a way. Because <laughs> I don't know where his soul is. Where do you think his soul went after he died? I don't know. We, we need to take a break. Okay. And uh, listeners, we will be right back. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. 
Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, everybody. Rabbi Mel back with my guest, Nora Wong. We're talking about the death of her son, Daniel, from something called Norse, which um, was sort of unknown until he died. He, he um, got sick one day and he was standing up uh, and he couldn't talk or move or hear or anything. And they took him to the hospital and they put him in a coma, an induced coma for 79 days. And then he died. And so we're talking about it. And I just asked um, what, and some people didn't hear this, so let's, let's repeat a little bit. What gave you comfort, Nora, if, uh, if anything gave you comfort? Well, I guess in the very, very beginning, I think I was just numb, and I was, um, I couldn't believe that he died. Even though we were in the hospital for so long, I just couldn't believe that he died. And, um, but then, let's say what finally did help us, I, it helped to talk with his friends, and to, and to see how much he meant to them. And also, I could see why he loved them so much, too. I could see a lot of him in them. And I, I, I like when people mention him. I remember one specific incident. It's one of my friends who she was having... Uh, difficulties deciding on things and um and and she's a widow so um she's feeling alone i guess and and one day she said you know daniel would just tell me to focus he said just focus and i thought yes that's right and the reason that she knew that is that daniel tutored her son and she must have overheard Daniel say to Andrew, you've got to focus. <laughs> and yeah. it's part of the lesson. And so she repeated that to herself in a very um, um, very natural way. She wasn't trying to make this up to comfort me. She really thought this is the way she's going to move forward, that she's going to focus um, because that's something that she learned from Daniel. And that was so wonderful to me to know that he affected her, too. Right. Well, that's what I was talking about before about his legacy. You know, you can't hold him, you can't touch him. 
There's no Sunday afternoon phone calls from him. You can't do any of that anymore. But that doesn't mean he's not still alive in a different way. Yeah. I really liked in your article when you talked about um, um, his friends revealed to me how much Daniel meant to them. Now there will be a missing groomsman at the wedding, an empty air in the place of a steadfast friend. At the end of one visit, this particularly moved me. A young man asks, recognize his sweater? I don't. It's Daniel's, he explains. I suddenly recognize Daniel's old cotton sweater stretched to fit his friend. The young man folds forward to touch the sleeves of the sweater, hugging himself. He is tall and blonde and athletic. He and Daniel were opposites in looks and temperament, best friends since nursery school. He had just returned from Moscow, where he was working. I wear this when I travel, he says, touching the arm of the sweater again. It's so soft. That's moving stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, Daniel's not there, but his legacy is. Um, it's not the same. It's and I would not. never Actually, tell you one of his was. good friends just wrote to me two, a couple of days ago to ask how I was doing, and I guess it's because it's Daniel's birthday on March 14th. Mm. And um, the other thing is that it is now March Madness. Basketball. Yeah, right. And Daniel was crazy about basketball. And he was really into numbers and and keeping track of scores. And so they would all have a pool or something right now. So I think whenever there's March Madness, they think of Daniel. That's nice. Yeah. Um, so your personal friends, I mean, you were gone for almost three months, right? Yes. And when you came back, I often say that when a child dies, you get a new last name. Oh, there's Nora, whose son died. Yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of, they, that's what they call you. Not to your face, mm-hmm. unless they're really spiteful, hateful people. But, but if they are talking about you to somebody else, you know Nora, her, her child died, her son yeah. died. Yes. Dad, do you think that happened? I mean, did people treat, how did people treat you when you came back? Well, I, I think I never realized how, how close I am, how important the town of Summit is to me because we, we felt everyone's support when we were in the hospital. Um, we, we got, um, we communicated to people through Caring Bridge, which, which is like an online yes, messaging I know system. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's very interesting. People would write their notes of encouragement right online. And actually my husband Raymond was wonderful. He posted almost every single day, um, which is sort of the opposite of the way we usually are. I usually tend to write the notes and call people, and he's um, much more, I don't know, parsimonious, I guess. But he 
felt it was important to post something every single day. And people wrote to us when we arrived home. um, There was food in my refrigerator. There was a new wreath on my door. We we arrived home. Uh, He died on December 3rd, and we we went home on December 3rd. We just couldn't stay there any longer. We just came right home. And um, we had some... Well, so... My husband and my uh, his brother drove a, uh, a car back with all of Daniel's things, and um, my daughter Adrian and my son Matthew and I took a train home. And one of my good friends, Ellen, met me at the train station, and she took me home. And I see my house is decorated with a wreath. She opens my door, and there's food in my fridge, there's food on the counters, there's, it's, it was, I, I, I didn't, I was speechless. And she just about set up a chair outside to prevent people from coming by. She wanted to give us privacy. Good. And it was, I, I think everyone, because he was sick for so long, um, so many people knew and I think everyone was wanted to try to do something because I have three children, and they all went to the Summit Public Schools. So I think uh, that our neighbors and their friends and their friends' parents um, wanted to take care of us. So we, I, although what you said um, is true, that yes, that is what we're known as now. We're the family who lost a child. But I did feel great compassion. Well, that's what being a friend is all about. It's about comforting. It's not about Mm -hmm. judging. It's not about, you know, I mean, sometimes people, real hardcore religious people sometimes figure that somebody is sick because they were bad. They were a bad person. And this is their punishment. Now, you don't believe that, and I don't believe that. And most normal people don't believe that, but there's too many people in this world who say that sickness and illness and tragedy is a, is a punishment for being a bad person. Um, I'm sure that you never heard that from anybody. Right. Nobody- I, did, I did not. I did not. Yeah. I, I think that the overriding reaction was great sympathy. I, I It was difficult for the majority of people to say anything, though. I mean, directly to me. I think there's this... um, There's... it's It was inconceivable. It was just not logical. It's And also the fact that it really didn't have a name. No one really knew what it was. I mean, even the word North, new onset, refractory, status, epilepticus... It's a description of something. It means these prolonged seizures for which there there is no cause and no treatment. So it's like, well, what happened? And I think a lot of people were confused and they didn't know what to say. Um, there were a couple of people who were incredibly brave and just came to sit with me. And... Um, 
they would talk. And it was comforting. They didn't really ask me what it was like. I think that people, even now, people don't want to know what it was like because they know it's pretty bad. And I really haven't told that many people the the terrible details, although I'm, I'm actually trying to write some of it because I can't believe it happened. Yeah. And you got past it. Well, we're all functioning. And you're, you're like a, rob, a robot sometimes. Sometimes, but we are all being, we're trying to be productive. Yes. So, and I think that working, you know, putting together the Norris Institute and finding some doctors who are wholly committed to learning more about the disorder and gathering information, you know, they're putting together the registry. Um, There's going to be a symposium, the first ever an international symposium on Norse next month in Salzburg. And there's actually several registries starting. There's the one I just mentioned. There's a new one that's starting in France. And they're thinking about starting yet another one, collecting data from patients um, who are not eligible for the for the for the regular Norse registry to to collect um, information from patients who have died or patients who have survived in um, out of the hospital. That's a good thing. It's too bad it has to be, but it's a good thing. Yeah. There are some indications that early administration of immunotherapy might be beneficial. They don't have enough information, but it's something that people should look into if they're ever in this situation. Well, when you say if they're ever in this situation, I mean, it sounds like from what you wrote about and spoke about Daniel that there's no preparation for this. There's no, you know, he, he had the flu, you thought, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of a sudden, he was paralyzed. Well, he was he was unresponsive. He was not moving. Um, yes. I guess he was, not, he was unresponsive, and then he started seizing. And um, he was probably unresponsive because he was seizing and no one knew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. In other words, so so let's say another 22-year-old, God forbid, you know, all of a sudden starts seizing. He's standing up and he's unresponsive. And, you know, and so you take him to ICU. I don't think that the first thing they're going to think about is Norse. That's right. The first thing they'll think about is that the person's on drugs. Yeah. Because right. that's what they asked us. And unfortunately, um, I, some of the drugs, especially ecstasy, um, uh, well, I don't know, but for sure, but that's that I have heard that, um, that that is a common question. Does he use ecstasy? No. And um, no, he did not. And his tox screen was totally clear. So unfortunately, 
a series of tests have to be done to to um, um, make sure that those are not the causes behind these intractable seizures to come to the conclusion that it's north. So it's it, it's it's sort of the end of the road kind of uh, diagnosis. That it's not That's all the of the above. Right. By the time they get there, there's nothing they can do. Um, if if they do well, I think if doctors, as doctors become more and more aware that this is a possibility, and that there are a, there there's more, there's a growing um, consensus. There is not a consensus yet, but there's um, there's starting to be a consensus of what to do they might get better results in the future. On our website, we also have posted a checklist for doctors um, in the midst of treating a patient of possible Norse. And um, the, the doctors um, took a while to put together all the steps, all the, all the things, questions to ask, possible tests to order. So, because they've, they have had patients with Norse or what's called FIRES. FIRES stands for Febrile Infection-Related Epilepsy Syndrome, which is often associated, is, might be a related, if not same disorder, in children. So, Norse previously was considered a disorder in, a seizure disorder in adults, Fires is seen as something in children. Now they're wondering if it could possibly be the same, but and what what might be the distinguishing characteristics. These doctors are going to be both the child and adult epileptologists and immunologists will be discussing this in that international symposium in Salzburg in April, April fifth. But you, yeah. Um, there, the doctors of the Norse Institute did put together a checklist to say, okay, these are some of the things to consider. And it's on our website and um, for other people to look at. It is, it, you know, the disclaimer is, we, you know, we're not there, but these are the, the things that we have done. So... In the heat of the moment, if you want to look at what some of the top epilepsy people and near um, ICU intensivists have done when they have seen Norse patients, this is what they this these are the things that they have considered. It's on the, the Norse Institute website on the professionals page. The Norse Institute website is divided into the family and into the professionals. On the professional side, there's a checklist there. There's also an algorithm for dealing with status epilepticus in general that um, Yale New Haven Hospital was kind enough to let us post. So this is really, uh, I think, very valuable information. It's not... Um, an established guideline for everyone to use, but it's for people to see 
that, again, it's, it's a crisis situation. And I think that if you're in a hospital that doesn't have it, its own protocol, let's say you, you've never had a nurse patient, you don't know what this might be, that it's helpful to see what these doctors who are on our advisory board have come up with and they're willing to share and that um, Yale New Haven Hospital does in, when they see status, refractory status patients. And then each doctor and hospital has to decide from there. Right. You know, I have been doing grief work for over 40 years, and I've learned many lessons. One of the most important lessons is that um, loss is painful and changes lives of the living, and sometimes death can lead to life. Now, unfortunately, it's not going to help Daniel any, but it will help hundreds of maybe thousands of people like Daniel, you know, who develop these symptoms and whose medical people are smart enough to read all this information. Um, so you have any other advice for parents or anybody who's listening, what to look for? We have two minutes left. I, in terms of what to look for in North or just what to look no, for I'm after sorry, you've what, lost your child? If you get sick, what would make you think of Norse? Is it the epilepsy? Is it? It is. It, um, it's Norse occurs in healthy people who have no history of epilepsy for which okay. there seems to be no cause. And uh, but every once in a while, it'll seem like they are recovering from um, a mild flu or um, just a mild cold. It's it's very so. It's in the recovery process that suddenly they're struck down. But there's not enough information that I could that that distinguishes right. North uh, from other seizures. I understand. I want to read the very end of your article. Uh, we've, we've we've come to the end of our time, but I'm going to go over time. Aaron, forgive me. I will carry this child for the rest of my life. He lives within me forever, a young man of 22. Others will carry him as they move forward in their lives. He will be with them when they look out to the world with compassion, when they act with determination and kindness when they are brave enough to contemplate all the things in life that remain unknown. I still search for him, but without desperation. I look for him in others. My search is lifted by his words. Just love me. I'm here. Nora Wong, I'm so delighted that you could be with us this evening. I know that you, your words have helped. Your pain is felt. And who knows, but how many lives Daniel's death will have saved in the future. Uh, I don't know, and you don't know, but we can always hope. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you. My listeners, I'll see you next week. Same time. Uh, Look on the web, and you'll see who my guest will be. 
and we'll get together again. Thanks. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.